0: up on the morning of November 7th to a New York Times notification announcing a Joe Biden and Kamala Harris victory, and a text from my friend that read, What Now? I gave myself a day to celebrate by eating cake for breakfast and driving around Walla Walla listening to patriotic songs, but after relishing the utter relief of that day, the words, What Now? began to sink in in more ways than one. What will the next two months look like? Will we make it to Inauguration Day, and then what comes next? I've been so caught up in the horse race nature of this election that it's been hard to look past November 3rd, but we're well into November, which to me is kind of uncharted territory. And let's admit it, a Biden presidency is not the cure-all that our country needs. So, let's set the scene. Here we are in the week of November 15th, and Joe Biden has won the presidential election with 306 electoral votes. Democrats clinched the House again with 222 representatives, although eight seats remain to be um, declared. And the Senate is still undecided because the Georgia Senate race is now a runoff race, but there are 48 elected Democrats to the Senate and 50 Republicans. I reached out to Allie Cohen, who covered the election for the Whitman Wire, and Christine Van Winkleshaw and Lucy Montgomery, the co-presidents of Whitman Votes, to help me tell the story of the 2020 election, and then look forward to the future to explore the question of what comes next and what we should be focusing our efforts toward. Welcome back to the Whitman Wire podcast. I'm Mia Graham.
1: My name is Allie Cohen, or Allison. Um, I'm a junior politics and English double major, and my pronouns are she, her, hers.
0: So you were in the newsroom during election night, right? Yes. What was the atmosphere like? What was it like to be a reporter covering such inconclusive and emotional results?
1: It was really stressful. Um, I got clearance to go in the newsroom that week. Mm-hmm. because normally I do my work just from home. So it was my first time going on campus this semester, and it was my first time ever in the newsroom because copy editors don't usually go. We were all very nervous. We had a lot of different news programs running at the same time, so it was kind of stressful, but we also put Moana on one of the computers. That's oh, so wow. something nice to listen to. That's amazing.
0: I was watching the results with some of my housemates, and at one point we just put on Arthur, that PBS kids show, cause the stress got to be a little much, but that's great. It was also just stressful because I think we've
1: all been thinking about this election and the results basically since the last one. So it was definitely the culmination of a lot of anxiety, but I didn't really have many feelings on the first night, I think, because most of the results coming in were as expected except for maybe Florida, which was disappointing.
0: Were there any election results that surprised you?
1: Mm, I think I tend to be maybe a bit of a pessimist. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't surprised because we elected him in the first place. So I wasn't expecting a complete turnaround.
0: Mm -hmm. And how do you interpret some of the exit polls that have been coming in as part of a larger story of this election?
1: I think something that surprised people looking at exit polls was, um, first of all, the fact that so many Hispanic and Latino voters voted for Donald Trump. I think that was something people were not expecting. Um, And I think that's a product of people voting against their interests and also uh, potentially like biases and internalized feelings of racism that a lot of immigrants have, especially in heavily religious communities. So that didn't surprise me, but I saw a lot of articles expressing surprise at that. And that could have also been a product of the Biden campaign not reaching out to those populations as much as they should have. Right, that makes a lot of sense.
0: Was there anything else that didn't surprise you? Turnout. In what ways? At least
1: uh, in my hometown, Santa Cruz, California, Um, Everybody was very horrified by the election results. And I think that mobilized a lot of younger people who weren't of age to vote. Like I was 16, I couldn't vote, but I could vote this time around. I think we all felt a lot of urgency around that. And then my parents' generation also felt more, more of a need to go out because I think a lot of people assumed that Hillary Clinton was going to win in 2016
0: so how would you tell the story of the 2020 election to the later generation
1: i think the 2020 election was jarring for a lot of people who hoped for a landslide biden victory and that was because we assumed that the last election was a fluke rather than something that was drawing out a lot of people's biases and views that they might have kept to themselves during the eight years of the Obama presidency, and I think that he preyed on a lot of that, and just because he didn't necessarily do the greatest job as a president, Biden won. But I think that without the pandemic, possibly we would have had another four years of Trump, because most people who voted for him prioritized the economy rather than racial issues and health issues, and the COVID-19 pandemic exposed a lot of issues in those two areas. Mm. So I think that those are going to be the main sticking points for 2020.
0: That's super interesting. As you look ahead to 2021 and a Biden presidency, what do you see ahead, and how should we hold this administration accountable?
1: I see maybe a very careful administration. Um, I think looking at really, really early, um, what's the word? Looking at Biden's like very early speeches at this point in time, it seems like he's prioritizing a message of unity and he's speaking not only to the people who voted for him, but to everyone. So I think that going into his inauguration, he's going to be working on Number one, prioritizing the pandemic because it's been pretty ignored recently, um, and then secondly, maybe bridging the gap and not taking the stances that we want him to take. I'm thinking specifically about the Green New Deal, which he's avoided talking about, and Obama also skirted that issue. But I think he's going to take up a lot of the issues of the Green New Deal. So I'm I'm seeing a lot of like carefulness, I guess. And I'm thinking it's going to be the same way
0: with foreign policy and immigration. Yeah, he is definitely being cautious. I see that too. Um, what did you think of his speech on November 7th?
1: Um, so I co-wrote the Wire article covering his speech. So we tried to stay very much like on the facts, but in terms of my own personal opinions, I had a lot of thoughts about the rhetoric that he used. I tried to put this in the article and they said, no, you should write for opinion. Said, well, no. To podcast. <laughs> you can exactly. <laughs> um, In his speech, I thought that Biden did a good job of turning to the people who made his campaign a success. And he singled out the African American community, um, particularly black women. Um, But his message of unity and avoidance of the last four years seemed to me to signal a return to the complacency that reigned prior to the Trump presidency. And especially including um, the mention of black female voters, uh, his turn towards the American dream that he took a couple of times in the speech, he said too many dreams have been deferred for too long, um, really bothered me because the American dream is, uh, I don't know how to explain this in a way. <laughs> the American dream is a fallacy, right? It's, it's a complete fallacy. Yeah. Thanking Black Americans for electing you, but referring to tired narratives of progress without any material change to back it up is, mm. is not a good move. And it's, it's not a good look and it's not gonna get him reelected. but I don't know if he wants to be re-elected.
0: Right, he said himself that he, he wants to be a one-term president, so. It
1: makes sense, he is the oldest president, is that true? Yeah, it's true.
0: Yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing. Are you worried about Trump not accepting the results of this election?
1: I think Trump has dropped a lot of his legal challenges, um, but the rhetoric of the election is stolen, count all the votes, that's still going on. So I don't know how much how much the legal challenges are actually gonna change the rhetoric on the other side. And I don't know how long it's going to take before Biden's victory is accepted. And I've seen a lot of parallels that conservatives are making with 2016 where we didn't necessarily say that the election was stolen, but it took it took Democrats a long time to come to terms with the results, and I think that they're falsely equating the feeling that was on the left with the feeling that's on the right right now, but it's definitely a false equivalency.
0: Why would you say that it's false?
1: Um, because I think the the type of denial that was on the left in 2016 wasn't necessarily saying that it was an unfair election or that he hadn't legally won. It was just a feeling of, oh no, this is what our country is, or oh no, so many people have these views. It was just really surprising, and it was also because the polls were so wrong. Mm-hmm. But this year, it's, it's very different, because they're not saying, oh, we're surprised, we're hurt. They're saying, no, it's, it's wrong, like we won, and that's very different.
0: Yeah, that is super different. Um, there's been a lot of media paranoia about like a coup or a breach of executive power and a lot of uncertainty about what the next two months leading up to inauguration will look like. Do you have any predictions?
1: Mm, It's hard
0: to tell, but I think that
1: Trump is going to continue saying that the election was fraudulent. He's going to continue... It's really hard to know because a lot of the things with, like, inaugurations are norms rather than laws, mm-hmm. so it's hard to know what's going to happen because even though there's a usual uh, series of events, it's not set in stone, so I'm a little worried for that, but I think that
0: Trump is losing steam. And 2020 is far from usual, so who knows? Yeah. <laughs> um, What do you think our role as college students is in the coming years of a Biden presidency? I think to hold him accountable as much as we can,
1: because he was elected by us. He serves us. He doesn't make decisions. Like, there are a lot of interests pushing him to make decisions. So I think that
0: holding him accountable to the promises that he made. Allie, you've given us... Lots of food for thought, and I really appreciate you being here on the show. Thanks so much for sitting down with me.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Welcome to the podcast, Christine and Lucy. I'm super excited to have you guys here. I'd love to start with some quick introductions. So if you could tell me your name, grade,
2: pronouns, and major. Christine, why don't you start? Yeah, hi. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, I'm Christine. I use she, they pronouns. I'm a senior politics, Hispanic studies major.
3: I'm Lucy. Also, thank you for having us. I'm um, very excited. I use she, her, her pronouns, she, her, hers, and I am a senior politics major. Awesome.
0: So I'd love to know about
3: the Whitman Votes Club and the work that you guys did this fall. Whitman Votes started about two years ago and it was initially called Every Vote Counts because it is a chapter of a national nonpartisan organization that student leads through are different chapters at colleges and universities around the country and we changed it to Whitman Votes this fall just to make it easier to understand what it is and to help with our institutional like institutionalizing our efforts and this fall we had obviously a bit of a strange arrangement being online it made voter registration efforts a bit more difficult which is what we've been focusing on in the past for the past two years so we weren't able to go into local high schools like we had in the past we weren't able to kind of provide registration access to Whitman students as easily. So instead of doing that, we focused more on the educational component and um, we hosted a webinar, like a educational webinar on just how to be a voting rights activist is what it was called. Just some kind of like concrete skills that students can learn and then pass along to other members in their communities. And we also, we created a short documentary on the voting rights of formerly convicted individuals in the United States or in Washington state and the process through which they have to re-register and all of that. So I, I think we had some, some different, but definitely productive and interesting things going on this fall.
2: Yeah, I wanted to add that a couple other things that we did were, send out some letters encouraging folks to vote through a different nonpartisan organization. And we've also hosted a documentary screening, I think, like a month ago before the election happened. So yeah, we've been really focusing on that educational component, as Lucy said, and hopefully moving forward in this semester, we can, you know, focus on similar things next semester I'm thinking and yeah moving forward after the election. Great that's a great transition
0: to my next question which is what is the future of Whitman votes now that the well at least the presidential election is over?
2: What we see is a strong push for voter registration and voting rights right before the elections but we also need to be supporting people you know when it's not election season and making sure that people register to vote before the deadlines come up and before it's, you know, there's so much pressure on people to, you know, register in time or meet those deadlines. So I think definitely the, emo- uh, the educational component is going to be really important moving forward too, but I hope we can continue and, and maybe I'm not sure what next semester will look like in terms of being hybrid, to do more voter outreach and voter registration as well, even outside of that election cycle, because I think even now, after the election, I think people who didn't have a chance to vote or didn't register to vote in time will feel, hopefully, more of an incentive to register in the future and have a say in these elections. And I know for this semester, kind of wrapping it up, we've began reaching out to different groups in Georgia to try and see if we can get out the vote in Georgia for their special election. So that's an initiative that we're kind of working on as the semester wraps up. But yeah, I think we'll decide a little more next semester what our projects look like. But yeah, is there anything you want to add, Lucy? Just that
3: part of the way that this organization works, like every vote counts as a national organization, is that they give guidance about like what other groups are doing and some things that have been successful in the past, but it's really up to us as a student group. We get to decide what we do if we wanna focus on the advocacy, if we wanna focus on the registration, the education, if we wanna focus on Washington State specifically or Pacific Northwest or us more generally so lots of flexibility there
0: so christine you mentioned reaching out to georgia voters right now which is super important obviously the selection is not over yet so i was wondering if to students who want to get involved what like activist tips do you have for being an engaged citizen right now and to
3: getting out the vote in Georgia. Our plan is to work with organizations that already exist. So instead of trying to start your own effort, which just seems kind of daunting and, you know, it might not be as successful at this point, but instead of doing that, working with organizations that already exist and are already pretty influential in Georgia, the NAACP, the League of Women Voters, even like the ACLU is a good example, just these, choosing whichever one you support the most. And it doesn't need to be donating to that group. It can be writing letters. It can be phone banking. It's really just about registering the voters who turned 18 after October 5th, which was Georgia's deadline. And they have the right to vote in this, these runoff elections. And also just based on precedent, we know that runoff elections typically get like less than 50% of the general election vote. So given that the Senate is very much determined by this, these runoffs. So whichever way you want that to go, it's important to get people to vote.
0: It really is. Those are some great recommendations. So I attended the how to be a voting, sorry, how to be a voting rights activist. And it was so cool. Did you guys have a favorite event from this fall semester?
3: The night before the election, we partnered with ASWAC and the counseling center to host a kind of like dealing with your stress or anxiety surrounding the election event. And I thought that was helpful. And just they provided, the counselors provided some helpful tips that weren't really political in nature, but very much applicable to the time that we're in. So you could use those before the election, can use those after the election. (laughs) So now
0: I'd like to move a little bit away from talking about the club and more just about how you guys felt about election night, or I guess it was more like election week. (laughs) How did you guys deal with the stress? How was
3: it for you? it was rough (laughs) to be fully honest. I didn't expect it to be as difficult as it ended up being. I thought that I had prepared myself for the wait, and that we like knowing that we wouldn't get results on November 3rd. But I don't know that it was that week was difficult.
2: (laughs) What about you, Christine? Yeah, I had a pretty similar experience like I, I thought I had prepped myself to know like hey it could take weeks to get all of the numbers in but then it came the Tuesday and the numbers started rolling in that evening and I definitely felt a lot of anxiety about you know getting the election results and making sure that all of the mail-in ballots and ballots received you know on election day were counted um, And after that, it was definitely, you know, a long drawn out week for me, I feel like I'm still in a lot of ways recovering from just all of that stress. Um, I feel like since we have done such a push at Whitman this semester to like get out the vote, and I have been so involved in that and thinking about that this whole semester, it felt as though there was maybe a little more I don't know, pressure on the election for me just personally, because I really wanted there to be a high voter turnout and for all the votes to get counted and for none of them to be discredited was really important to me too. And to make sure that everything, you know, happens, you know, in in a good and safe and secure and reliable way. So, yeah, it was definitely a rough week, but... (laughs) It was, and it was a long week too. So we won't
0: have another election for a while, maybe another two years even. So why do you guys personally think that the get out the vote movement is still
2: important and relevant? I think that, like I said earlier, when we get to election season, a lot of folks I think feel really rushed and feel like there's a lot of pressure to register in a short period of time when you start hearing about the elections, maybe it's, you know, a month or two before the elections, when it really starts to ramp up and different states have different deadlines. And so it can be hard to keep track of, you know, what state you registered to vote in and your registration status. For me, for example, this year, I had studied abroad last year and my registration status because I hadn't requested an absentee ballot because I couldn't receive mail was it was, I forget what it's called, but inactive, I think was the status. And so there was a lot of bureaucracy. I had to go to like three different places in Walla Walla to try and register or re-register or make my vote active again. (laughs) So I think it can be a pretty tricky and lengthy process for a lot of people. And so I think not having that pressure of having to worry about meeting those deadlines and being able to take your time and do it when the election offices aren't overwhelmed by people registering or other work that they have to do to prepare for the elections, I think can be really, really beneficial for kind of everyone involved. Yeah,
3: I also think that beyond registration, I think just staying active about like knowing who your candidates are, right? We have elections in 2022, 2024, and candidates are gonna start announcing re-election or announcing their candidacy for 2022, pretty soon, and contributing to those campaigns, phone banking or knocking on doors, those are really great ways to get involved. And even beyond that, something that Every Vote Counts on a national level has been working on is getting national legislation passed for former, formerly incarcerated individuals in the U.S. to have their voting rights restored automatically. And like in Washington state that already exists, but it's very much not a national thing yet. So yeah, I don't think that voter registration is the only way to be engaged. I think there's a lot more people can do on a daily or weekly, monthly, yearly basis.
0: What are some of the, the practices that you've committed yourselves to
2: to this effort? I think for me, you know, just staying engaged and aware and informed has been really important to making sure that, you know, I, I know what's going on with the officials in my area. And so when it comes to voting time, I'll have a better idea and better sense of who the candidate is, who's running for re-election maybe, or what types of things other potential candidates have been doing, you know, in the news. And then I think beyond that, not to You know, plug Whitman Votes, but participating in Whitman Votes and doing that kind of outreach, even when it's not election season, has also been part of what I've committed myself to in terms of making sure people stay engaged and keeping myself, you know, engaged at the same time.
1: That's huge. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Similar to Christine, definitely Whitman Votes is a great outlet for a lot of that. I also think, in addition to educating myself on the candidates, I have also, this election cycle, I made an effort to figure out which groups I supported who would then endorse candidates, which was, it seemed like a, I don't know, I found it to be a productive way to figure out who I wanted to vote for, especially if there were two people on the ballot from the same party that I supported and I didn't really know who to choose. Like their websites looked the same type of thing. And then to look at who would endorse them and that was helpful.
0: Yeah, that's a great strategy. I love that. I think I'm going to use that next election. (laughs) Okay, so last question to wrap up the interview. How would you tell the story of the 2020 election to the later generation?
3: That's such a good question. Can we go back before the election time? Oh, yeah, for sure. (laughs) Okay, I would say that if I'm going to boil this election down, I think that a lot of it comes to a divided country. People feeling like, or constituents, the populace feeling like their voices aren't heard and aren't represented in Washington and, you know, in Congress, in the White House, whatever branch you want to look at, and that people felt very passionate about one side. A lot of large scale division and then also a lot of small scale like within families among friends things like that and it was very polarized and passionate i don't know i i think people got rallied and you look at the voter turnout joe biden got the most votes out of any president in the history of the us and i think that's pretty incredible definitely shows that when people truly care about the issues and people understand the stakes of their vote and the issues, then people do turn out.
2: Yeah, I think, Lucy, I think you summed it up pretty well. For me, the thing that stands out kind of most, I think, beyond just how polarized the country uh, was and is is just the mail-in ballots and the attempts to discredit uh, the voting system, which I think really defined the election and is continuing to define how we consider the results. And I think for me also, just the anxieties surrounding the election, I feel like that's been a really big part of the 2020 election and something that's made it really unique to other elections, especially considering we're going through a global pandemic right now and trying to deal with that and trying to vote and continue to stay engaged as citizens and where most of us are very isolated and not participating in community events or solidarity on a community level. And so I feel like I've you know, been both surprised by the amount of community we've been able to generate, largely virtually and without. You know, being able to share spaces a lot of times and also concerned a lot about the rhetoric in this election surrounding just the invalidity of the ballots and the mail-in ballots specifically, even coming from uh, the current president. So I think combination of all of those things is, is what I would say stood out to me most and is what I would tell in the story about the election.
0: Those were both amazing answers. You guys have had some fantastic thoughts and it's been so fun to sit down and talk with you guys. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Nia. Ali, Christine, and Lucy did a fantastic job summing up the election results into a story that will be told about the 2020 elections. You know, it's hard to predict what the next four years will look like, but if 2020 has taught us anything, it's how to be flexible and how to make our voices heard. If these trends continue, I truly believe that the future is a place where real change will happen. Thanks for tuning in to the Whitman Wire podcast, and I hope to see you next time.